0: Welcome to episode 18 of Once Upon a Lifetime. We left Andrew in our last episode secretly engaged to Louise Whitfield and at the top of his game when it came to management and labor, very popular with both sides. So we are now going to fast forward two years and moving into the the 1885 depression. There's kind of another sort of mini depression. It is now time to, again, reduce wages. And they're going from the glorious eight-hour day back to the 12-hour day, which Jones knows this is really the sticking point. This is going to be the big problem. They don't want to go back to a 12-hour day. So... Jones shuts down the plant in mid-December, which she does every year. And all the plants did this. They would shut down for Christmas and do a lot of maintenance on the machines. Then in January, when the workers came back, they had the option to either sign the new contract or to not sign the new contract. Because their contracts were also up January 1st. Mm. If they signed it, they would come back to the plant to work. If not, they would be replaced by substitutes, which were basically scabs if the right workers had gone on strike. So, this 12-hour day thing is just a really big deal. Really, if you've got this 8-hour day, you have time then for a nice dinner with your family, maybe for some reading, maybe you go out to the bar with your friends, you you know, you have a life. Right. You go to work and then you have a life. The 12-hour day means there's no really human activity happening. So the quality of their life plummets.
1: Right. This is definitely not only is it hurting their families operating with these 12 hour shifts, for sure, accidents and injuries and deaths are going to go also grow more likely and families and workers are definitely concerned. So they actually do give in almost right away at
0: the Edgar Thompson plant. Um, I mean, they're. They're on strike for a month, maybe, but it works because they'd already been on six weeks of unpaid furlough. It's the middle of the winter. They're hungry. There's just not a lot of morale for a big strike right now. So they sign and the Amalgamated is not happy about losing this. And so they're just sort of waiting until this contract is up to come back stronger. Andrew is not even really present for any of these things. He is off writing a book. He has written a book called Triumphant Democracy. And this is the sort of fruition of his... I mean, honestly, his last year in England had been pretty obnoxious. Well, yeah, he was the insufferable traveler. He really was. Insufferable expat, really. Like, he's come home to his home country, but he's like, oh, my gosh, in America, we do things so much better. It's just way more efficient over there. And taxes are better. And I mean, just on and on about the efficiencies of the American system. Well, he decides not only to not shut up and stop being obnoxious. He writes a book about it. Of course. It's a huge hit. This book is a huge hit. <sighs> um he had Herbert Spencer's former assistant help him write it actually. And it's a big hit in England although people it's like the book you you hate to love, you know.
1: Well, yes, basically he's claiming that the new world is farther along the evolutionary path than the old world and so it's going to be a major player in ending of all wars and violence. So, you know, it's a tall order. It is also something he
0: extremely deeply believes in. This is not mm-hmm. um, pie in the—I mean, it is pie in the sky—but it's not, not to him. In his mind, he's—he is really preaching this. There's a doctrine. I mean, this is a religiously held conviction. This is a, a matter of faith for him. We will see that forever in his life. He continues on that path. In the fall of 1886, his mother is on her last legs. She's really too unwell to go back to New York City after the summer. Now, this was the first summer he'd sort of finally had it with the him and Louise never being together for months at a time.
1: Forced distance. And
0: he was over it. So he actually like smuggled her into this cottage that was about 10 minutes walk away from the house
1: that he and his mother would live in. Right, with other family friends. I mean, it was very above board. It was just one of those little social maneuvers. But his mom wasn't well enough to be aware that it was happening. Right. She probably wasn't out at the dances and other...
0: Right. So they were actually... He and Louise were actually able to have a summer where they would go on walks and talk and private. And they could actually have a relationship as they wait for his mom to die which is kind of morbid but (laughs) just really the truth yes yes but the thing is everything oh I mean really everything almost falls apart at this point not just everything the Andrew Carnegie we know
1: this was almost the end for everything crisis moment Mm -hmm. finally occurs because in those days, you know, illnesses could quite quickly become serious. And so he writes to Louise just a note saying in October that he had a chill. And he's in bed and the doctor's attending him. And he thinks, Oh, it's not really a big deal. It's just a little bit of the malaria. I'll be fine. Nothing, nothing serious. Don't worry. But by the time that Luis gets this letter, she should be very alarmed because what's happened is he's contracted typhoid fever. And within a few hours of sending off the letter, he was in a near coma. So he is put into a room adjoining his mother's room where she's also sick with the typhoid. And the nurses and doctors are in a panic running back and forth between them both.
0: Yeah. in this house, now we're in October in Pennsylvania um you know at their summer cottage it's not it has no insulation and it has no indoor heat it's got no central heating so they have the fires going full blast they've got rugs on the windows to try to keep in some of the heat it's this is a terrible place to convalesce honestly it's like cabin camping gone terribly wrong yeah it really is and the weirdest thing is is that within a day of andrew getting struck down by typhoid fever his brother tom who's in pittsburgh not even in the same area he leaves work early with cold but tom was a very hard drinking man and he had worn his body down until it turned into his this cold turned into pneumonia and he was dead within a few
1: days right he leaves his wife lucy and nine children behind and it it's just a shock. That's right. And it, well, it's a shock and it's not a shock
0: because it's interesting when Cousin Dodd, mm-hmm. um, who's one of their Scottish cousins who's come over to America and now works for the company and is growing wealthy himself. But when Cousin Dodd tells Andrew that Tom has pneumonia, Andrew says he'll be dead within the week. Uh. and And he is because everyone knew Tom just didn't have the physical right he didn't have that
1: stamina I don't think he ever had the stamina that Andrew did either I mean who does who could who could but of course Margaret being already frail and elderly and seriously ill she's just not told at all that anything has happened to Tom
0: no she's too sick herself Um, so they end up November 10th so October 16th is when Andrew gets sick right in that same week is when Tom dies November 10th mag dies and this is it i mean andrew at first he had started to kind of get better
1: from the typhoid and then his brother died and it sort of sent him back down into it again right and he had actually been doing so poorly after that that his partners are starting to prepare for his death they're running around frantically trying to make financial arrangements and realizing if he dies this is going to be a major crisis yeah this
0: is where you'll there are things that come out of this that are meant to to protect the company in this case, because as it is right now, they're not prepared for both Carnegie's to die. I'll explain that later. But because they know that Mag's death will affect Andrew negatively, they don't tell him that she's died. In fact, they hire a crane and they lower her casket through her bedroom window so that the casket does not have to be walked down the hall where Andrew will see it because they're in adjoining rooms. So, you know. That must have been quite a sight. I can imagine all the neighbors standing around. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think Mag would have liked that. No. I feel like it's a very undignified way to... Very conspicuous. She would not have been for it. (laughs) No. The newspapers are publishing, like, blow-by-blow details of his illness because they think this is it. This huge, you know, steel magnate is about to go under. So that's Part of the main thing that's keeping Louise up to date on on his well being, so she thinks he's
1: dying. Right. The partners think he's dying. I wonder what she thinks that Mother Carnegie is finally dead. There has to be that moment of that shoe has dropped. I know. Right. At this point, she's got to be thinking like either uh, I made what in what the cruel shade twist or of fate or that. Yes. that Finally. finally gone on to the Choir Invisible and, and now her beloved fiance of however many years at this point might also shed his mortal coil like this is bad bad news it is it is she's gotta have been I mean talk about having to
0: wait Ugh. so it's six weeks it actually takes she has to wait six weeks until Andrew wakes up the first thing he does when he's coherent enough is he asks for a pencil and he's been told of his mother's death and he writes Louise and he says please meet me In the south of France and we'll get married there right away. It's like mama's dead, you know,
1: meet me tomorrow at noon. Right. Practically. He's come at death's door. Now he doesn't want to put it off a moment longer. That's right.
0: She is like, I am not sneaking off to Europe to get married. That just looks bad.
1: Right, And then when he had a little bit of time to maybe get better and think about it, he also thought it's not a good look to get married immediately after mother dies. Maybe this would be a bit of a, a blot on her memory if they just rush off and do this thing. So perhaps a little bit of a waiting period might be appropriate. But right. yes, his first thought is, I need to marry you now. Right. He says, I think it is cute. He says,
0: I shall see you daily and hourly. Almost. We must be together. Louise, I am now wholly yours. All gone. But you oh, dear one, be careful of your health. I mean, gosh, like He's, everybody around him is dropping dead. Right. He almost drops dead. He's like, just don't die on me right? so we right. can get married. Um, now, the thing that came up, because Tom and Andrew almost died at the same time, is that Andrew has over 50% of the Carnegie Steel stock. Tom had 16%. This is a major problem because they are a privately owned company. If those shares are owned by the Carnegies, they would go directly to Lucy. But you see, the steel company was arranged so that the stockholders were also the managers. Everybody was intimately involved in the day-to-day Running of this steel company, there was a serious buy-in. By which I, I don't just mean stocks. Like they didn't just own stock and kind of look in the newspaper, like, oh, how is this company doing? No, they, they all made all the decisions. What are they going to buy? Are they going to upgrade this machine? Or the, you know, everyone knew what was happening. So without Andrew and Tom there, who own a huge majority of the stock, those other private individuals, they do not have enough money to then buy out the stock from Lucy Carnegie, who would have been the benefactor of Tom's stocks, and she wouldn't have any say in the company. So there's just this huge... Like a power vacuum. There's a power vacuum, and also, like, who's going to get that money? Who's going to buy those? Lucy doesn't want... She needs actual money. She She's doesn't right. want stock in a company, you know, she needs because she nine actual children. So speculation is not something she has time for. Right. And 75 percent of all of their dividends, all of the partners dividends would always go back into the business. So you had to have people involved who knew what they were doing. So they decide to set up um, Henry Phipps is one of the main partners. Um, he's got 16 percent share, too, I think, which is the other highest beside Tom and Andrew. And they agree that if any one of the partners ever leaves the company, whether it's through death or being fired or retiring, that their shares could be bought back by the other partners at a discount. Now, they would undervalue their books. And I have to thank my brother-in-law, Tom, because my brother-in-law, Tom, because I... I had to run all this by him last week when we were together at a family gathering. I was like, listen, (laughs) talk to me about business because I don't know it. (laughs) So he helped me understand this
1: and I'm very grateful. I'm very impressed. I'm just sitting here like, okay, explain this to me.
0: (laughs) Yes. So they would undervalue the company. So there's valuation. You, you evaluate a company and what is the value of a company is not just what it made last year or what it made the last three years on average or something. You take that into account, but you also take into account improvements that they're making in the business, if they're going to scale the business to do more business it's larger like on a national. Yes, so earnings. you're taking in the potential earnings or the likely potential earnings. Mm-hmm. And
1: it's kind of a hard job to evaluate a business. It's not a science. I mean, it no, is kind of a, a science. It's a skill. But, I, I imagine you need a lot of experience, and it's not something right. you can probably just pick up and start. right and there's official valuation so you can pay
0: so on the stock market if it was a publicly held stock it would be evaluated by the official by official uh, i don't know if it's the government okay i don't know that much but it is publicly evaluated and you don't pay for that a private company could pay a professional valuator to Valuate its business. But Andrew and his partners are doing this themselves. And what they are doing is undervaluing their own. So officially on the books, if anybody got a hold of their books, they would say, oh, we think that we're worth, you know, $6 million. When they know that they're worth $30 million, at least on the open market. That if they went public, if they put their stocks out on the open market and there was an impartial valuation of the company done, that it would be at least three to five times the amount that they have officially on the books. So why? Why would they undervalue their business like this? Because if you report that you're making millions of dollars in profit every year, why on earth would steel need a tariff? from the government. You know, foreign steel has a tariff coming in. You don't, they didn't really need that, but they wanted it because they could make more money. Right. <laughs> also, they have to negotiate with the railroads. The railroads are just going to bring them in supplies and to ship their things out. The railroads just get whatever they think that they can get from you. It's a negotiation. So if they think Carnegie Steel's making $2 million, when it's really making $6 million,
1: they are going to give them a better deal because they think they can only pay this much. Sure, so what they lose in the appearance of value, they gain in kind of like leverage for negotiation. Exactly. So they're undervaluing. The point is, is that all of the partners, after this whole Carnegie's all
0: dying scare, the partners all sign what they call this ironclad agreement, which is if any of them leaves for any reason, the other partners have the right to buy their shares from them or from their beneficiary. For the book value. Now there was this sort of gentleman's agreement that what would happen at that point is that they would be given other things, like they'd be given an honorarium or a bonus. So that when the partner left, they would still end up with the same with the market value of the stocks, but that officially for the books and for all of this negotiation leverage, it was still gonna be undervalued. The other thing in the um, ironclad agreement is that if three quarters of the partners want to force someone out of the partnership, they could force the buyout at book
1: value. So there's huge incentive there for all the partners to get along. But the only partner who's not really threatened by that kind of agreement is Carnegie because he's still having the greatest percentage. So he can't be forced out. No, he can never be forced out.
0: And Phipps is the one who... Henry Phipps is the one who designed this ironclad agreement. It was his idea. He's the one who wanted it. And he could have been, technically, he could have been as well. But there are friendships here. Mm-hmm. The, there's a certain familialness about. And whenever they would bring on a junior partner and give him, say, they, they would say, oh, you can come and be a partner with us. We'll give you 2% share of the company, which you will just pay us back with your future dividends. So, kind of for nothing, they would be inviting partners on board, but they'd have to sign this ironclad agreement. Wow. So, you've got to trust people, is the point. There's a huge amount of trust. All the partners signed this.
1: All right. So, finally, at long last, they're planning their. April wedding, 1887. And at this time, her mother is the only one who knows about it. And they definitely want to keep this quiet, just like your modern celebrity weddings. He knew that the newspapers were going to be all over it. And so he wanted to get married. And the very next morning, jump on a ship and head for England so that they could have a week at sea in privacy without the pesky reporters trailing after them. So despite the secrecy, she really got into planning her wedding. She wanted to have everything just perfect. One thing that I understand is that she was concerned that her friends were going to hear about this from the papers, not from her personally. So after some back and forth... It's totally Facebook, isn't it? It
0: is. You're like, oh, I'm pregnant. Oh, okay. How many people do I have to tell in person before I can put this on
1: Facebook? There's the in-person people, the I'll text you people, and then the random Facebook announcements, right? So she wanted to have some degree of personalization. So she decides that they can send out an announcement, mail being what it is. If they time the sending of these envelopes just right, it will arrive just as they're leaving. So this will work out perfectly. She is just... Like every little detail, she wants the paper to match the envelopes. But who can she trust to, you know, print these things without letting the cat out of the bag? So I know. I mean, if you just send it to
0: some random printer Mm -hmm. and they realize Andrew Carnegie is getting married, that's
1: going to be splashed all over the papers before it even happens. Sell that information right away. So they realize, okay, we can trust Tiffany's. They're not going to spill the beans. So then she thinks, well, okay, but the envelopes. How are we, you know? So it's just every. Andrews like fine. We'll get the envelopes blank from Tiffany's, and you personally, my dear, will just hand address them. And right, because they were, she was going to pay someone to hand address them, but can't can't, can't happen. It. It's right. so funny, right? So she gets it done, and. Um, They have their wedding and it's a very small wedding. There's maybe 30 odd witnesses and it's at home. It's not one of the society weddings. Most of her friends were getting married in, you know, Grand Cathedrals and all of the, you know, the creme de la creme of society were there. And she, she did not have this. But I don't think she was very particular about that. I don't think it was upsetting to her. The little newspaper notices later say that she just wore a simple gray traveling gown of wool. And I thought, oh, that sounds very sweet and Quakerish. And then I looked it up and the, the Met has it on their website. And it's, it's so cute isn't and beautiful. It, oh, it is. It has like a little like that. asymmetrical swoop on the on the bustle and the embroidery is just gorgeous and still I think very modern looking for when it was. But then when you get the rear view, that bustle, mm-hmm. that, that back with the train, that was I don't know. I mean these days that's a thing too, but um there there was a lot of volume to that dress. So Right. I love it. the newspapers the next morning say...
0: Mr. Carnegie made short work of his marriage. He refused to announce his approach to the papers till he was forced to, and he got married and left the country between dinner and breakfast times. This is quick work, even for so energetic a man as the head of the great Edgar Thompson Steelworks.
1: Yes. I mean, people couldn't believe. And not only that, they were married on a Friday, which nobody did. And they thought, well, why? What bride wants to get married on a Friday and not on a Saturday? But being a practical man, he thought, well, the ships leave on Saturday. Like, you know, we need to. We're going to be on a ship on Saturday yes, morning, goodbye. so better get married Friday night. Yes, yes. So before their wedding, before the whole dress and the jumping on the ship, a very important thing occurs. Um, they sign a prenup, one of the earliest prenups. Yeah. I mean, this is not
0: really a, a deal back then. You didn't have a
1: prenup because you didn't get divorced. So why would you need a prenup? Right, right. And, and so basically, what this prenup says is that she's aware of all of his worth and his holdings. She's aware of what would be normally due to her under inheritance laws, but she gives that up. She understands that he is intending to give away his wealth and that she is only going to get a set amount, which is still a good deal of money, but it's considerably less than the millions of millions that he's worth. And she'll just have that and a a wedding present of a house And, you know, like a small settlement, but no more. She's not going to inherit the whole kit and caboodle. That has already been earmarked to basically practice his sharing of his wealth, which she's fully on board with. She's absolutely all about it. It, There's no hesitancy. In fact, I
0: think this is one of those things that helped her feel like she had a place in his life, that she was going to help him be this great peace bringer and philanthropist that they were going to help better the world together she could be a part of that part of his life i mean she was never going to want for anything so it's not like a massive sacrifice on her part but it is a real awareness of the goals of Andrew's life, and she wanted to be a part of that. That was what
1: reconciled her to the fact that he was already a great man. Well, he was really well-matched in that she was a very principled person. She was also not as energetic as him, but she was, I I guess, maybe purposeful. Yeah. And having a mutual plan, and it just kind of gave her that sense of being somewhat equally yoked in that they had that shared vision and that shared life, and, and they just were i mean it took them seven years to finally come to this yeah but it it was a great match it really was they were so happy
0: after this i mean they had it was like rough getting to this point but after this they i mean there's a little bit of adjustment which you can talk about right now that she knows he's social you know she's been reading about his social life in the papers for years but never was able to be a part of it well now that she is a part of it she is like what the heck The pace of this life is insane. It's breakneck speed constantly. Not only has she married a great man, she's now surrounded by great men. She's just surrounded by famous authors, by politicians, by
1: scientists. She's just completely... Right. And just when you're trying to find your feet into basically your new role as as a married woman you
0: and she's young i mean yes. you know compared to Relatively, all the
1: people she's yes. hanging with
0: <laughs> she's a lot younger not as confident right you know she just is she's shocked she's really she keeps writing her mom letters over this summer because they end up spending the whole summer in england they you know get married friday leave saturday don't come back for several months and they lease a house there where they have they host all these guests and she's just kind of like, oh, I guess this is my life now. I <laughs> I uh, didn't know because he has finally got that domestic world that he's been wanting to oh, have. Yes, yes.
1: And he's going to host like no one ever hosted before. It's right. He's like, finally. Yeah. I will show them how it's done. And so he's hosted. Yes. And so she writes to her mother. Well, mother mine, we are in the world. Nothing but a rush and a bang all the while. I begin to experience the realities of life now, and oh, how do I long for a mother. I'm not a bit homesick, but I begin to realize how much a man wants and how important it is for a woman not to have any wants and wishes of her own. I did not love that quote. I did not. I was all on board of that quote going, oh, how fun, until the very last sentence when I thought... Oh, that's not great. I mean, woman of her time and all, but. Woman of her time, like in some ways she was ahead of her time. But yeah, this quote definitely tells you that she understands that social convention and such, you know, being what it is. I don't know. Like, I wonder how much she believed it or I wonder how much she thought, well, this is what a married woman ought to think.
0: Mm hmm. I think they were still finding their way. Yes. And they did. And as time goes on, they still keep up a hectic pace. But Andrew is pretty aware of her limitations
1: after a while. Right. I mean, this is well, within... Well, he, he doesn't want to... Yeah, he's very good later about not putting too many expectations on her, not overburdening her yeah. with... They find their way through it. I feel like it's when you have the newlyweds who always have to have the little mug that says wifey or something. You know, like It's mm-hmm, just mm-hmm. like that preciousness that um because she she certainly is no doormat no she's not and
0: he and he's not a bulldozer either i mean he is totally a bulldozer actually but he just
1: plows ahead through he does but he's not not
0: over insensitive to her he's not he she might be the only person he's not terribly insensitive to but he she actually also says Andrew and I are going are growing more and more together every day. We snatch so many happy moments together and he is so much more thoughtful about the little things than he was w- before we got married. He takes keen delight in all my pleasures and is so thoughtful of my welfare. You have no need for anxiety, mother. I have a husband who knows how to take good care of me. Oh. And I think he does. Yeah, And they're really in the first few months. They're just figuring it out. I just think it's interesting that he, she's like, oh, my <laughs> gosh, what have I gotten myself
1: into? Yes. Yes. Well, you know, they didn't have just a few guests. It would be a few dozen at a time. So Andrew hires lots of servants and um, she gets a lot of compliments on her housekeeping. But she's modestly tells her mother, well, it's easy to keep house if you have plenty of servants and plenty of money. Which, yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. I'm with you there. I mean, I I don't I know for can't myself. Imagine,
0: I, yes, yes, yeah. She he even hires this bagpiper. They they're staying. They're leasing a house called Kilgraston, which they love. And he hires a bagpiper to wake everybody up as an alarm clock.
1: Yeah, he doesn't like people sleeping in. And I have to say that this this might be a solution to my stay event. i feel <laughs> like i'm gonna start truth. using my alexa to blast bagpipes <laughs> oh my gosh else. my kids are in for it tomorrow
0: oh yes yeah that is brilliant or maybe i'll just dress up in the highland gear that the bagpiper would <laughs> I make mean, can find a bagpipe i feel like yeah
1: it can be played badly or played well and it's just give one somewhat the, similar yes give the youngest child a bagpipe also, the, the piper pipes them into dinner, which probably also keeps people from being late to the table. This is. Yeah, you hear that bagpipe from everywhere, right? So it must she be like, would after like after you leave their house, your ears must be ringing. Right, <laughs> right. Just, but she loves it. She does. Well, she's decided that anything that is to do with andrew or scotland she's gonna love i mean she could not buy enough plaid seriously it's true armfuls everything heather she just she was
0: into it i love that i mean i think that that's great that they could share this together because from now on they spend every spring and summer like april to september in scotland oh yes pretty much i mean they would start in london for a month until it got a little warmer because it's just cold up there but um they would sail in April. They'd be there till September almost every single year, unless something bad happened and they couldn't go. But um, they're together on that. You can't even say that he's fully American because he spends so much time in Scotland.
1: Well, I feel like he was almost it was like if Walt Disney were to interpret Scotland. Yes. That would have been their situation. It was like this big American romantic splashy scottish kind of retreat i think that's a very good point yes well they loved it whatever however they they interpreted it yes and it did him such good she writes that andrew looks 10 years younger everybody says and it would do your heart good to see his clear complexion and bright eyes and the sweet happy look in his face mother darling i believe he comes dearer to me every day of our lives so she just is so happy. She feels they're so united. And she says, no one, not even you, can begin to imagine the sweetness of that man's disposition. Mm-hmm. I feel like he's been waiting all this time to be able to be vulnerable and pour out all of this affection and enthusiasm. Yeah. And he's like, found this person. I think with his mother, he had to have that toughness and that he almost, I, I think she was one of those mothers where you kind of had to protect your feelings a little bit. Yeah, for Maybe sure. Maybe you you couldn't express them so. And and I think he really found a place to just put all of that. And just like whatever else he did, he just, when he was married, he was married a thousand percent. Yeah, absolutely And he was true. known, too, for his fidelity. I mean, this was a happy marriage in that he never would have thought of going stray. Unlike oh, many of his gosh. associates. And, no. Yeah, any infidelity. He was famous for being, you know, very disgusted. If he heard someone had a mistress, he didn't enjoy doing business with them. That's right. And he
0: also had no kind of patience for any sort of human weakness. Oh, moral failings? He just thought, Just no. no. <laughs> like he later on, one of his protégés, Charles Schwab, who we'll hear about later, he gambles. He is like caught gambling. And I mean... Carnegie just goes after him in the newspapers, saying, "You know, I'm so ashamed of him," and it's kind of awful, actually. <laughs> I mean, you know, he sort of goes nuts. It's a little bit when he's a little really? bit older, but yeah. but that's another example. Well, he definitely of, clutches his pearls, like whenever yeah anybody. No, he just has no he. Like, he's a very upright person. So is Louise, and and mm. they're but they are very happy together. It's yes. lovely. It really is.
1: So there's an early biography that said that they were like such an interesting partnership that you could kind of see in their letters how they complemented one another. And so when Andrew would write, the letters would be like very short and jumpy and almost like telegraph style. And he'd say, well, that's because how he learned how to correspond was through, you know, his early days on the telegraph thing. And she would write these like long, thoughtful letters. And they just they kind of complemented one another. Those kind of opposites just fit each other yeah. so well. yeah, yeah.
0: So we're going to leave the happy newlyweds there for the time being. We thank Evan Cresta for editing and mixing this episode, and we will see you back next time. Join us on Facebook or at our website, onceuponalifetimepodcast.com.